Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by State Farm. Look, as you guys know, I tend to give it to you straight. And while I know a lot of things, I also know there are times when I need to lean on others for help. When it comes to insurance, State Farm is the one I count on. I love that they make insurance easy. You can monitor your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim with their app, which was just awarded Best Insurance Mobile App of 2019. And thanks to their network of 19,000 agents, you'll have someone local to walk you through options and help you choose a policy that truly meets your needs versus cookie cutter coverage. But what I appreciate most is that they don't mess around. They don't bother with gimmicks or games, just helpful guidance you can rely on. Go out and get the insurance you deserve. Get State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. And now, The Dave Chang Show. Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. Um, hope everyone is hanging in, is safe and sound. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to someone I work with who is a world-class bassoon player. I just want to let you know that all of us are thinking of you and your family, and um, you know we are so incredibly sorry for your loss. You know, it's been a tough time for everybody. Don't think anyone could have been prepared for whatever's been happening. And I am trying my best to remain positive on this podcast. And, um, you know, I I joked about the seven steps of grieving and loss, but I do think that it's something I go through on a daily basis. And, you know, I think that I'm coming out the other side. And I am really going to make a concerted effort to be more optimistic. And I am optimistic about so many things about our business, about where we can go with just... There's been a lot of loss and a lot of people I know that have gone through some terrible ordeals and uh, it's hard to keep your head above water in this time. And I just wanted to let everyone know that I'm going to try my best and to use this as a platform again to talk about things that we need to talk about. We're going to have more conversations about Too Small to Fail, the sort of spin-out podcast, talking to industry leaders in the restaurant and sort of small business in general impacted by this COVID-19 epidemic. And um, we've had a couple dads podcasts that have gone over incredibly well. I think people have reacted to it way more positively than I thought. And uh, this podcast today is going to be about the movie Demolition Man. And it's basically our absurd, stupid take on a movie review. And I guess we're sort of calling it bad movie club or maybe just bad good movies. And uh, we need some levity and we need some humor. And uh, certainly the podcast that we recorded a couple weeks ago has that in spades. Uh, We recorded this with Chris Ying and Isaac Lee. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But talking about using this podcast and this platform that I have to be educational, to be optimistic. I was um, challenged by Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, the Senator of New York. She's been helping out a bunch of chefs and restaurateurs and listening to the plight and needs of so many of us. And she challenged me actually to combat COVID-19 challenge. And 
she's donating pizzas to a local hospital, and I've decided to donate to the Lee Initiative, Chef Edward Lee of Kentucky and a few other restaurants outside of Kentucky, Korean-American, very wise, very fun, and just a, a great chef and a good person created an amazing organization that uh, has set up relief centers around the country offering assistance to restaurant workers in need. And um, our good friend Jessica Koslow is doing that right now at Squirrel. I want to give a shout out to her and to the Lee Initiative and to all the other restaurants that are hosting the Lee Initiative because there's so many restaurant workers that are displaced and need help. And uh, I think it was a really good thing that Senator Gillibrand offered me this platform to sort of highlight the Lee Initiative. And uh, I challenged the 11.30 p.m. late night host to sort of pay it forward and, and hope this thing continues to carry on. Because the reality is we need to be optimistic. We need to think positively because we're only going to get out of this by increasing our empathy and just being a good neighbor. That's it. That's the reality. And and there's nothing more romantic than that. I think it's just not being so myopic and knowing that everyone's going through this and we just sort of have to rise above it somehow, some way. And um, I'm thankful that I've been able to speak to people like Senator Gillibrand, who's been really on top of it. And honestly, it gives me hope that not all our elected leaders are, are dumbasses. Um, so she is someone that uh, gives me hope and um, I know that she's going to do her best to take care of a lot of people, which leads me to the next thing. Um, I'm really proud of our industry, the restaurant industry. So many groups have created solidarity. I know in New York, we have Roar. Uh, you have the Independent Restaurant Coalition. You have a variety of organizations that are doing really amazing things, either to take care again of workers in need or communities in need like the Lee Initiative or trying to make sure that we have a, a voice in the government that is passing stimulus bills. And I know that they're probably going to pass another one because we have to, because the last CARES Act bill didn't really specify anything for independent restaurants, yet airline industry got a ton of money. And there's a stat that's going around that I wanted to share that you probably have seen on social media, that it's the collective aggregate revenue generated by restaurants and food industry in America was $1 trillion and employed 11 million jobs in the industry. And this is why it is too small to fail. And I, I just wanted to point out that we need help and we need more elected officials, congressmen and women to hold them accountable to know that... If restaurants don't get the assistance they need, we're going to get the same reaction and repercussions of the banks and the institutions of 2008 collapsing. Because the more I thought about it, restaurants, while we don't have the cachet and the economic clout of these behemoths, whether it's the airline industry or cruise industry or whatnot, that continue to get lobbyists and representation to represent their interests, and this only recently that restaurants have, I think that. We are too small to fail because, you know, it's something we've talked about over and over again. But the way I've been thinking about it is restaurants are banks. We are very much banks because we're cultural banks. We are a 90% cash flow business that constantly 
gives away 90% of the cash that we're generate out the doors to everyone else, whether you're a florist, whether you collect garbage, whether you are a beer representative, you know, fishmonger, bread artisan, you know, you name it. There's so many parts of society and culture that we don't even think about that revolve around restaurants being in motion. And when they are all shut down, not only are restaurant jobs where you actually cook on the line, there's a whole ecosystem that I know we've talked about, but the more and more I think about it, it needs help. And I'm not sure what exactly needs to be the case, but we need more specific numbers and money directed to restaurants. And um, we've said, called out this number before. If you haven't called your elected representative, please call them at 202-224-3121. That's 202-224-3121. And I wanted to talk about one more thing, which was... You know, California has sort of announced the preview of what they think reopening the economy might look like. There's some peaks at what the CDC has talked about. There's been some great articles about the rapid response and sort of the best-in-class practices of Singapore and Taiwan and how they've been able to mitigate and flatten the curve with Hong Kong as well. And how, if you just think about how restaurants are operating in Asia and how I think America will adopt the reopening of our economy, we are going back to the 50% occupancy, which was sort of the, the bane of restaurants' existence at the start of COVID-19 here in America. And, um, you know, my focus has been trying to make sure that we get the right PPE, the protective gear, the masks, the gloves, the sanitization required in our restaurants, very pragmatic things that we need answers for from a national level if not a state level. And um, I knew that we were going to venture towards a 50% occupancy. The fact that Governor Newsom of California is already discussing the 50% occupancy, that means restaurants will be open. They have to be open because they feed aggregate too many people, right? You can't just shut restaurants down. So takeout and delivery will be the new norm moving forward for a long time. But Restaurants that never thought about takeaway and delivery will have to adopt that because you're going to be capped at doing 50% occupancy, something that we've discussed before. But, you know, how do you operate with the economics pre-COVID-19 in a post-COVID-19 world? Because you can't. Social distancing is going to require a lot of things that we haven't quite figured out in terms of seating. Um, maybe in New York, you're not going to be able to do three turns equivalent. You're basically going to have to do one big turn spread out over the night should you open up. And, you know, New York's gotten the brunt of, it, of the coronavirus more than I think most cities simply because of the density and the mass transit system. You know, talking to my peer group in cities across America, they don't have the spatial constraints or the, the crowded mass transit that we have in New York. So New York is in and of itself in some regards. And um, it's something we need to figure out. But across the board, across the country, we're going to need to figure out how you seat people. And uh, the more conversations we have with one another, the better we're going to be prepared when and if we can reopen our doors. And I highly encourage everyone to start imagining what that looks like because we cannot be surprised. We cannot wait for answers. I think there's two things that are going to happen. You have people that are going to wait, and those are managers, and then you're going to have people that 
are leaders that are making decisions without really knowing what the result might be. And I think collectively, we all need to try to be better leaders without really having the best set of data to make these decisions on. But there are some givens. I think we can work off of 50% occupancy as much as that fucking sucks. That is something that we can work off of. We need to potentially roll up a lot of our resources to buy masks. I don't know exactly what mask is necessary. I don't know if it's a K95, N95, a sterilized surgical mask or a regular surgical mask. I don't know if a 1% bleach solution is going to be appropriate in restaurants. I don't know how you're going to taste food. These are questions that are, you know, really keeping me up at night because I'm trying to make sure that we have pragmatic solutions to pragmatic answers. And uh, I'm talking about this because we need more and more conversations. As hard as it is, because there are a lot of bad things happening, the good thing we can do is be prepared. And I think that's what we do best in this industry. We don't wait for answers. We find them. And I'm not an expert in any of this. I'm well-versed in some of it, but I think the ingenuity collectively across this country in restaurants that are small to restaurants that are big, if we put all of our minds together and resources together, I think we can come up with a pretty good answer. And I think the base level that we need to think about is how do we make an airport restaurant the best restaurant possible, right? A world-class restaurant. I talk about airport restaurant, number one, is because there's this very strict HACCP plan in terms of accountability of food that you touch and handle. There's obviously security issues, but also what I like about airport restaurants is they come in a variety of shapes and sizes and all kinds of restaurants from fancier high-end to first-class business class lounges to fried chicken to McDonald's to the traditional fast food establishments. You have a pretty diverse array, but in terms of how you're able to operate them, the kinds of variety and variability are pretty limited it's hard to change things in airport restaurant because things have to be so controlled. And, you know, one of the things that we need to figure out is how do we adopt a more expensive safety protocol without burdening the cost on everyone else? And we're not even talking about paid time off yet, paid leave, uh, sick leave, um, potentially hazard pay, all of these things that we can and should readjust before we reopen up or or just start answering these questions as how do we pay for these things? And, you know, I, I do think that food is going to have to be more expensive. And that's something that's keeping me up at night because a lot of the fast food behemoths that are sitting on a surplus of cash, they don't taste their food to begin with. Having spent time in a lot of these restaurants, you have no idea how much time I spent studying a lot of these places. You've never, you don't have to touch food physically and you never will taste food. And I was sort of like bummed out for a long time thinking about this, I was like, oh, you know, you probably heard of my voice for the past two or three weeks in this podcast because I was thinking about that future of what that looks like, which is why we sort of jokingly did this podcast about Demolition Man, about a bad movie where Taco Bell becomes the only restaurant that wins. That legitimately might be a future that we might have to embrace and we have to fight tooth and nail to make sure that doesn't happen. And... I don't know what that answer is, but we need to start figuring that out. And I was really losing sleep over the prospect of keeping a restaurant where all the things that I enjoy, tasting food and 
being able to get an ingredient, whether it's, you know, an herb or a piece of fish or vegetable in earlier that day. And it's in its peak moment because, you know, we've been working with an artisan or a farmer or a fishmonger to get us this product in. And there's a limited set of time that it's going to be in season. And one of the great joys that I have working in restaurants is being able to work with that and improvise and put a dish on the menu when you least expect it. And that kind of spontaneity is what gives me life. And the prospect of not being able to have that and having to standardize restaurants. You know, one of the reasons why I think uh, some of the people that I've worked with that might have invested money in Momofugu that have criticized me is because I just, I'm really bad at opening the same restaurant over and over and over again. Those things are not really my cup of tea. And that prospect of having this, the same, it was depressing to me. Until I started thinking about some of the restaurants in Asia, and it was a conversation that we had with Corey Lee on this podcast, great chef Corey Lee, who, by the way, is doing a takeaway for his new Korean restaurant. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name right now. Go check it out if you're in San Francisco. I'm pretty sure it's already sold out every day. The menu looks insane. But Corey brought up a really good point. In SARS in 2003, post-SARS 2003, in China, Shenzhen, Shanghai, Taipei, Hong Kong, you know, if you went to get hot pot or if you went to get barbecue of some sort, they didn't have communal chopsticks. Everyone had their own chopsticks. And now, post-SARS, they have chopsticks that you're not supposed to like eat from. And that was a recent development. And it got me thinking, oh my God, there's so many other things that I've seen that I haven't really contemplated. But now that I have... For close to 17 years, a lot of Asia had to adapt to a post-SARS world. And a lot of these things, they've just, we haven't even, it might look weird to a Western understanding, but if you go to Taipei or even Tokyo, you're going to see unbelievably delicious food where cooks are never tasting anything. But it's still made with love. It's still made with integrity. It's just done in a different way. And if we don't start embracing different, and if we constantly complain like I do, I'm guilty of it more than anyone else, constantly complaining about what happened in the past and how much we're going to lament about the past, the more energy we spend on that, the more we're going to fuck ourselves over. So I've been trying really hard to be optimistic and to think about solutions that we're going to need to have. And no, do I want to really meditate on what an airport restaurant could be? No, I don't. But that's the hand that's been dealt to us. And we got to turn that piece of shit hand into the best hand of all fucking time. So I'm asking you guys to think about it. I know that we have plenty of listeners that are not in the industry, but you guys are diners and restaurants. So you're part of this too. Think about it. Think about how you would want to eat as a diner, what concerns you would have, and send us an email. We need to start this dialogue. Send it in at askdave at majordomomedia.com. Both diners, both restaurant owners, front of the house. Front of the house is going to be impacted more than anything else. Can you imagine a sommelier wearing a mask? You know, this is the conversation that I've been having with a lot of my, again, friends. And I don't know if it's been something they want to hear, but I've been forcing it because we need to start to embrace these tough questions. My restaurants, we taste food all the time. What happens when you can't taste your food anymore? The whole prospect of wearing a mask is to prevent you from ever taking your mask off. So these are, these are very simple, pragmatic answers with difficult solutions. And 
by simply having a conversation with Corey Lee and talking about communal chopsticks, it's it's made a very productive sort of impact on my mind, and I'm hoping the same thing can happen. This group think is what we need, and we need to start asking these tough questions about what we can do to mitigate the day we open up again and not complaining about 50% occupancy. We're all going to have that problem. And yes, it's going to be a total pain in the fucking ass. But both from the diners and from the culinary perspective, I think if we start to share our thoughts, we're going to be able to cobble together a plan that just might work. And we need to bet on that. All right. That was my spiel a lot longer than I thought it was going to be. I wanted to talk quickly about some of the things I've been doing on social media. You know, there's quite a few people living in this house we've talked about in the past on the past few podcasts. I've been cooking a lot and it's been really important to me that we try not to go out and buy whatever we can to be at home, to stay at home, to social distance and to stretch things out. And whether it's regrowing your scallions on the windowsill or just reusing leftovers over and over and over again. That's what I've been forcing us us to do. Besides even going to the supermarkets has been difficult because some of the things that Hugo likes to eat, I can't find anymore. So we got to make do with what we have. And I think it's been important. And again, I've really been thinking about the conversation I've had with my mom. And in some ways, I feel like I've been sort of prepared for this, just how I was raised, right? From my mother and my grandparents who were survivors of the Korean War and were always sort of trauma bonded to food about never having enough. And the things that I took for granted, I've sort of have been drawing upon a lot. And I think it's made me really not just appreciate what's happened in the past, but appreciate cooking now in ways that I never could have before. And it's been wonderful. It really has. And I'm, I'm really excited to share a lot of these things with people. I'm trying to be positive about that. I apologize if I'm a cynic or a pessimist because that's, I think, my nature and my default setting. And I'm trying, as I get older, not to rely on those things. And, you know, the one technique I wanted to talk about was boiled meats. And I think it's something we need to think about a lot more. You know, summer's coming up or late spring. I don't even know what what is it. Yeah, summer's coming up. We're going to be grilling meats and again and all of these things. And that's wonderful. I think we should do that sparingly because I think when we have meats, we should think about maybe stretching it out more than just one meal. You know, we already have an issue with Smithfield, which is problematic in and of itself because they produce a lot of bad commodity pork, but nonetheless, it impacts the food system because a lot of people depend on it. It's the largest pork purveyor creator in the world because you're going to have a lot of these facilities that are going to be potentially shut down because employees that are working in hazardous conditions right now, because it is shoulder to shoulder, a lot of these slaughtering houses and places that produce pork and chicken and beef, you know, they are working at risk and there might be a supply shortage. I don't know. But the reality is, even if there wasn't, I think it's in our job right now to do our best to stay indoors and not go to the supermarket more than we need to. So this is something I've been doing when Grace was pregnant because Grace wanted broths and soups and nutritious liquids that I was always trying to give her. And it's something that I reconnected with because I never really cooked at home prior to that. So it's something that I've put into my repertoire, which ultimately led into some of the dishes that you might have seen at our various restaurants with boiled meats. But the reason we boil meats is to stretch it out. And the other thing about boiling meats is you get to 
basically take tougher cuts that are cheaper and more economical, that have more sinew, more muscle fiber, more just gristle, basically, that would not be delicious if you just simply roasted it quickly. These are the braises and the slow roast that break it all down and, and you basically get that gelatinous deliciousness. These items can only be done through a low temp process or a high temp process like boiling. I, I still think you can get that. So not only that, you get to use cheaper cuts, but if you put them in water and you cook them, not only do you get this beautiful piece of meat that was probably not delicious any other way, you now get a beautiful broth. And I think that's something that is so synonymous with Korean cuisine is, is like getting multiple uses out of something because Korean history was so much about famine and being impoverished and scarcity. So you make do with what you have. And, you know, one of the things I've been doing a lot, you know, we have a dish at Major Domo that's a boiled chicken dish, and it's much more fabulous than what I do at home. And basically, like, you take a chicken, you boil it. And you can serve the meat from the white meat, and then you can separate the dark meat. And you basically can make a soup or a salad or a soup and poached chicken. You can even deep fry the chicken again or pan roast it again to get some color and nice golden brownness to your chicken and still have a soup and a stew. And I think it's a beautiful way of cooking. And it's not just economical, it's going to be delicious as well. And you don't have to do it with just chicken. You can do it with pork shoulder, chuck roast. There are some really good cuts out there that I think you'd be surprised if you just simply roasted, hey, that's delicious and we all want that. Listen, it was Easter. I can't imagine how many roast lambs that were on every kitchen in America, but boiled chicken is highly underrated. Boiled brisket is so delicious. But that's just the first step. And you have at minimum two different dishes out of that. So I posted something on my Instagram feed about boiled chicken. You should check it out. So I made a sujebi, which is a Korean soup, chicken soup. It's very similar to the Southern chicken and dumplings. And uh, that was a dark meat. And with the white meat, a couple of days later, I made um, a version of Heine's chicken rice, which was delicious. And you can do that with anything. Like I have a, a frozen, I'm right now I have a, a frozen pork butt that's defrosting and I'm probably going to boil it. I want to make a soup and then I'm going to roast the meat off and get color on it and probably serve it with a gravy made from some of the soup. And that's going to be at least a lunch and a dinner, probably two dinners. And it's important to me that I cook this way, try to make the most delicious food possible and I think it's important that everyone learns how to stretch it out because that's cooking, making something delicious from something that you would never think could be delicious. And that's the stuff that I want to embrace. And I'm happy to have this platform to talk about. And if you have questions about it, send them my way and we'll do our best to answer it. That was a long sort of three topics that uh, I wanted to discuss. That was probably four topics. But before I get into the conversation with the aforementioned Chris Ying and Isaac Lee, the bad movie club or the bad good movies. Because we wanted to talk about lighter things and fun stuff during the, this pandemic and, and give you some laughs. And maybe none of you will laugh, but we certainly kept ourselves entertained. And just FYI, we recorded this like very late for me and I was deliriously tired. This was two weeks ago. Man, two weeks ago felt like two years. 
but um, this is probably the first and maybe the last edition of of this bad movie club, good bad movie, bad good movie. I don't even know the name. Where we're going to make the case that some movies you think are bad are actually good or vice versa. And some will just be bad movies. We're not professional comedians. And I know that there are other people doing similar things, but we've got our own perspective, which is totally fucking absurd. Whether as people in the food industry or Asian Americans, I think that we all have something different to say and different insights. Plus, we are all currently locked up in our respective homes watching weird movies. And I'm making sure that if we do another one of these, it's going to be on the Bradley Cooper, Sienna Miller movie, Burnt, because it's fucking bad. (laughs) And uh, anyway, in this case, with Demolition Man, the Sylvester Stallone, Wesley Snipes, sci-fi, dare I say classic, Chris Yang, Isaac Lee, and myself are going to try to convince you guys that Demolition Man is a great piece of cinema. In fact, we had to convince Isaac Lee that Demolition Man is a, <laughs> a masterpiece. So if you haven't seen it, this will definitely make more sense if you watch it first. So next movie, again, we're going to do is Burnt. So watch that. Uh, we'll probably release that in the next month or so as well. If we do do this, and we'll see. We'll see. Maybe this would be the last one if the response is terrible. And this goes off the rails because, um, man, we were doing these podcasts. It was the first moment of laughter we've all had in a long time. And I swear to God, we were all dead sober. You may not think so. Anyway, I have spoken enough. I will shut the fuck up now. Here is our podcast about Demolition Man with Chris Yang and Isaac Lee. I'm on a video call with our producer, Isaac Lee, and Chris Ying, creative head, director of Major Domo Media. Content czar. Yeah, content czar. Media emperor. (laughs) Cliff Booth. God damn you. (laughs) So I want to do something a little bit lighter since things have been pretty heavy and serious and downright... Sad slash depressing. So I wanted to talk about Demolition Man with Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes and came out in 1993. Isaac, were you born yet? No, I was a negative one in 1993. Jesus. Oh my God. That is absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. (laughs) So funny. Um, You know, we've been doing some podcasts about COVID-19 and the epidemic and not to go down this death spiral of what that looks like. But I just was like, oh man, there's a chance that uh, if we don't get the stimulus package and the government doesn't do their job, that the restaurants might look like a scene or a a very famous scene in a very not good movie, which is the restaurant wars in Demolition Man, where in the future of 2036, all restaurants. Twenty thirty two. Twenty thirty two. Excuse me. All restaurants are Taco Bell's because they're the only restaurants that survive the franchise wars. So that's why I was like, "Oh, this might be a good time." So uh, before we get into the summary, can we just go into the key players here? This is why it's important. Daniel Waters, the screenwriter. Do you know what film Daniel Waters wrote? He wrote Heather's. Insane. Ying, does that change your opinion at all? It reframes 
how crazy this movie is for sure. This guy just lives in a fantasy world, evidently. He just lives in a, a different plane of existence, is what that says to me. <laughs> and without going into Heather's, which is a you know cult classic movie in the late 80s with uh, Winona Ryder and Shannon Doherty, but what is it about Heather's that makes you go, aha? I mean, Heather's, if I recall correctly, is like, it's like a Mean Girls predecessor, super dark comedy, murder suicide thing, right? Is that what Heather's is? Is that my thing with the right movie? Yeah, there's, there's Christian Slater. They start killing everybody. All, you know, it is sort of like the predecessor to Mean Girls, but way sicker and way more twisted and awesome. And whoever wrote that movie, I think, is not your normal screenwriter, right? There's more substance, number one, right? Would you agree with that statement, Chris? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Isaac, have you seen Heather's? I have not. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for it right now. It seems like a wild movie. <laughs> yes. It should also be noted, Chang, really quick, that after Demolition Man in 1993, Daniel Waters does not have another film credit on his resume until 2001. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because obviously he went back in time. <laughs> right. What I mean to say is that this is his magnum opus. And, you know, you only get one of these in a career. <laughs> so I, I'm basically presenting this like I'm a, a lawyer, a public defender uh, in a court case. <laughs> My second witness is the director. This is what gets real crazy, guys. This is what gets really crazy. The director, Marco Brambilla. Brambilla? It seems like it's Brambilla. Brambilla? Brambilla. Brambilla is the only film he's ever directed. <laughs> he did one, and that was it. Uh, I, love how, was it. I love how, Chang, you're framing that as like, this is a mystery. Like, this auteur, this genius was mystery. only allowed this one opportunity to direct. When yeah. the other view of this is that this motherfucker got one chance and was never <laughs> asked back to the party again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he blew it. Well, no, no, that's not. That's Isn't not that the logical conclusion that you should reach? What I want to, <laughs> what I want to ask, really, is obviously that's the easy conclusion, guys. That's the low hanging fruit. Come on, <laughs> the conclusion you have to get. To, <laughs> the conclusion, the the, <laughs> the conclusion you have to get to is how the fuck did he even get this job? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. No, that is <laughs> that is a question. He, he only <sighs> he only directed TV commercials <laughs> and uh, like it's almost like it was like the immaculate. He just like conceived. He was fully formed to just do this role for one time, and that was it. And here's the best part about Marco: <laughs> he got so sick of <laughs> of Hollywood that he became a successful visual artist. Yeah. Merging film and like visual dreamlike images. And if you haven't seen his work, it's like Salvador Dali meets NC Escher meets I don't know what the fuck, because it's crazy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and for a lot of people, they'll recognize his work from the power music video, the Kanye West song. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 He made the power of Kanye. So we very well may be talking about a genius, 
and we just don't know it because we're dumb. All right. You know what? I, I grant you that there's a possibility that this guy is a genius. I, I, I grant you that because, let it be said from the very top, I enjoyed Demolition Man as a kid, and I watched it again, and I continued to enjoy it. And I, there, there are shades of genius in this thing. I'm going I'm to say that. I have a feeling that Isaac uh, disagrees, though. <laughs> Your feeling is correct. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. There's, there's plenty more witnesses here. Okay, okay, okay. Right? Objection, Your Honor. We have Sandra Bullock, one of Hollywood's great actresses. This is her first big starring role. And I'm going to dare argue one of her greatest performances just shy of gravity. Mm. Holy shit. Holy shit. Quite a statement. Hey, guess who won? uh, I can't remember what year. Marissa Tomei won Best Supporting Actress for My Cousin Vinny. I think that this could have been an Oscar-worthy best supporting actress consideration because it's not like she's not a good actress. Wow. She's obviously won like I don't know two, three Academy Awards. I don't, I don't understand the logic between Marissa Tomei, one for my cousin Vinny. Look, I think Sandra Bullock was amazing in this. Sandra Bullock's performance <laughs> in this movie haunted me in my adolescent horniness for many years. <laughs> Uh, I was Sandra Bullock defined in this in this one dimensional role, really defined what like my idealized future woman would be. But I don't see the logic between Marissa Tomei was in my cousin Vinny and Sandra Bullock deserves an Oscar here. Yeah, what are you saying? No, no, no. because Marissa Tomei won an Oscar for playing a one dimensional role. Uh, Okay, I see it. I see it. Okay, and Sandra Bullock fooled you because she was so convincing at playing. A one-dimensional character. You know what? She leans really hard into this, and I I don't disagree. She leans hard into this role. We we listen. She we, really does. We got to get the, okay, Dave. You got we got to get through all of the main characters and start explaining some of these people so that the audience understands. All right. Now I went on my spiel. Can someone else give us a summary of Demolition Man? Ying, do you want to take it? Yeah. Sure. 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 Uh, Sylvester Stallone. I don't know if it's peak Sylvester Sloan, but Sylvester Sloan is is very ripped in this movie. And he plays a character named John Spartan. And he is the protagonist. The bad guy is played by Wesley Snipes, who goes by the name of Simon Phoenix. And essentially what you've got here is a movie that opens in 1996 in a post-apocalyptic Los Angeles where Simon Phoenix is a super criminal who has taken control of uh, South Los Angeles and is, you know, a, a larger than life villain who's just hell bent on killing people. He's, he has uh, abducted a bus full of 30 people and um, has them stowed away in a factory building. And Sylvester Sloan as John Spartan uh, helicopters in to stop him. Uh, long story short, they, they're both caught. They're both arrested. Sylvester Stallone gets pinned for the deaths of the 30 people who are on the bus because he blows up the building with the hostages in there or something. So yeah. uh, both of them are are sentenced to the punishment of the day of, of 1996, which is being cryogenically frozen while you are being behaviorally reprogrammed subtly through, I don't know, messaging. So they're both sentenced to be frozen in blocks of ice until at least 2046 
fast forward now to 2032 and Wesley Snipes is up for parole. The world is completely changed. It is an idyllic, utopic world. And Wesley Snipes, during his parole hearing, escapes and begins to wreak havoc. And in this future world, there are no guns. Police officers are not trained to um, apprehend or deal with violent criminals. There hasn't been a murder in Los Angeles for 30 years. And so what does the police department do? Well, the only thing they can do, unfreeze Sylvester Stallone and send him on a manhunt for Wesley Snipes as Simon Phoenix. Um, Sandra Bullock plays Lieutenant Lenina Huxley, who becomes Sly Stallone's de facto partner. And the, the whole movie is, is essentially a fish-out-of-water story about this criminal and this cop who are continuing their bitter and violent rivalry in a new world. The only other thing that I will add as a subplot that's happening somewhere in here is Dennis Leary, leads a band of freedom fighters who hates the new, clean, sterile world. He lives underground with a bunch of steampunks. They're the bane of the uh, the, the standing government's uh, existence. And, and, and no, no. Dr. Co- Dr. Cocteau. Dr. Cocteau. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Co- Dr. Cocteau hates Dennis Leary <laughs> and wants him killed. And, and it turns out, Spoiler alert here. Wait, should I, I mean, should I spoil it here, guys? Is it, is it okay yes, that this movie we're is 30 the whole years movie. old? It's, it's, yes. Uh, okay, so it turns out Cockter Docto has secretly been masterminding the whole thing, released Simon Phoenix with the express purpose of using him to kill Edgar Friendly, a.k.a. Dennis Leary. And uh, I think that's all the relevant plot points, right? Yeah, but you're missing one important theme. That is like recurring throughout this whole movie. And they say the line at least three times. You send in a maniac to catch a maniac. Yeah. And that's the line by John Spartan. Uh-huh. Don't never forget that. Yeah. I can never forget it. Takes it. a maniac to catch a maniac. It's it's what my lower back tattoo says. So I can never forget that, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the end of the movie goes basically Phoenix kills Cocteau and then Spartan kills phoenix very improbably and then it's like a new world order at the end of it yeah john spartan aka sly stallone sort of rebuilds the new world in one sentence when he says to dennis leary the sort of underground steampunk and he says to him and the kind of uptight straight-laced police chief you get a little dirtier police chief and you get a lot cleaner (laughs) dennis leary and somewhere in the middle the world will be great. <laughs> and uh, he, he brokers a, a new world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's the end. Basically, very, very Trump like. Very Trump like <laughs> from Stallone. <laughs> uh, very Trump like. Can I just, I just wanted to say that um, the way that we are watching this movie right now, the three of us, is literally exactly the way I watched it <laughs> when I was 11 years old with two Asian guys. <laughs> <laughs> and like literally has not, nothing has changed in my life i'm still watching and dissecting demolition nothing. man 27 years later with two asian dudes oh that's amazing time is a flat circle chris yang <laughs> so this was my first time watching this film and i think i have a vastly different opinions than you guys you know we spent the first whatever 30 minutes of this podcast defending it can i read you some of my notes i have some no, notes no, no. But wait, wait, let me give you one more thing before we go into you destroying it. 
<laughs> okay. And this gives you a glimpse into my my fragile state of mind in quarantine day. I don't know how many. <laughs> and no, no drugs were taken for for this this insight that I'm going to share with you. If you believe in the Marvel multiverse, it's quite possible that this is the Shawshank Redemption. Oh my god. <laughs> Well, Wait, no, say more, say more, say more. What what are you talking about? <laughs> you got you got the warden, right? You you got Warden Norton, you have Sylvester Stallone as Andy, and you have Morgan Freeman as Wesley Snipes. <laughs> In jail. This is the multiverse. It's it just things go out in different ways that you could ever imagine. But the storyline's sort of the same, except that they don't know how to like live life in the real world anymore. Oh, I mean, I, I, okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, uh, uh, no, (laughs) that's not, no, no, (laughs) what? No. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Tim Robbins doesn't kill Morgan Freeman. (laughs) That's not how the movie works. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I saw on the graffiti in the underworld. Get busy living or get busy dying. Graffiti in the back. Oh, my God. (laughs) We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Right now, we cannot be overwhelmed. We have to work to keep our loved ones safe and protect our communities. We have to work to stay strong, to stay connected, and to stay focused. We have to work to inspire, to innovate, to build new solutions. But for all of this to work, we have to work together. At ZipRecruiter, they connect employers and people every day. But today is different. They are partnering with first responders, government officials, the medical community, the innovators, and the manufacturing, transportation, and food distribution industries to make sure they are finding the right people for the right jobs right now. Let's work together. ZipRecruiter.com slash work together. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash work together. Today's show is also brought to you by Mack Weldon. Mack Weldon makes the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. Their mission is to make sure that all your basics and beyond are smartly designed with premium fabrics and shopping for them is easy and convenient. Listen, now that I don't have to get dressed up at all, Mack Weldon is like my only thing I wear right now. It's just the most comfortable things and it's one of the few things that makes me feel good about the day and uh, with all the stuff going on it's nice to have comfortable clothing and Mack Weldon values its loyal customers that's why they've created the Weldon Blue Loyalty Program here's how it works create an account it's totally free and then place an order for any amount and never pay for shipping again once you purchase $200 worth of products from Mack Weldon not only will you continue to receive free shipping but you will also start saving 20% on every order you make for the next year that's an amazing deal, guys, because the underwear, the undershirts, the sweatpants, they're the best things that I wear. I'm a loyal customer. The Weldon Blue Loyalty Program also grants you access to new products before they're released to anyone else, as well as free gifts added to future orders. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code Chang. What a great value 20% off your first order at macweldon.com enter promo code chang that's macweldon.com and promo code chang for 20% off your first order 
And now, back to the show. Let's let Isaac provide a counterpoint. I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear, <laughs> okay. Chang, that you and I are big fans that believe that in the multiverse, this is the Shawshank Redemption and that Sandy Bullock deserved an Oscar for her turn as Lenina Huxley. But Isaac, if you can <sighs> dare to contradict so, that. This is a cry for help. I'm losing my fucking mind. It's very clear. <laughs> Go ahead, Isaac. Um, okay. Well, so I really went in trying to like the movie because I know both of you guys liked it. I generally like bad movies. If they're entertaining, I like it. I don't, I'm not one of those highbrow, sophisticated, it has to be all intellectual kind of guy. I really tried to like it. And I think this is one of the worst movies I've ever watched. Because <laughs> the way that no. it's paced. <laughs> let me start with the way that it's paced. The whole movie outside of the prologue of it takes place in two days, right? Yeah. It takes place on <laughs> August 3rd. Part. That's and August word. 4th. You, you know what they call that, Isaac? They call that a thrill ride from start to finish. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's start there. So it takes place in two days. I mean, there's a lot of things that take place in very short amount of time. Romeo and Juliet famously only takes place over the course of like a week. I don't have a problem with that. The problem I have with this is that 75% of the movie has like very little plot. It's almost all exposition. And then it's only like the last 15 minutes that has actual plot. What are you, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to... <laughs> so what? Before, before, it's so slow. Okay. So, I mean, so did Romeo and Juliet, by the way. But, you know. <laughs> sure. Let me. I just want to footnote. I'm going to come back to Romeo and Juliet and blow your fucking minds. Continue. Sure. <laughs> All right. So at the very beginning of this movie, first of all, like, all the bad guys have devastatingly terrible aim, and the plot armor on Sly Stallone is as thick as the Earth's outer crust. It's incredible how <laughs> no one hits anything. Okay? And then, how did they survive? This is an actual question. The building blows up, and Spartan carries Phoenix on his back and jumps out of the building. They look barely hurt. This is like Fast and Furious on steroids type of plot armor. Neither of them are hurt. And then, a psychopathic criminal saying something while he's being arrested is enough to land a white cop in jail. <laughs> How is that po- in America? A black man's word is enough right. to land a white cop in jail? <laughs> right. And it's 1996, too. So remember, this is four years after uh, Rodney King. Uh, the Rodney so. King riots. Yeah. I mean, Isaac, what did you want, though? Did you want the movie to be about Sylvester Stallone's slow recovery from a spinal injury that he suffered from falling out of the window? No, Come no, on, no. What do you want? No, 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 no. Chris, this is what I want. I want the movie to make sense. <laughs> I want logic no, and no, no, no. Stop, rational stop, storytelling. Stop, 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 stop. Isaac, Isaac. Isaac, tranquilo. You got to calm down here. If you're going to uh-huh. understand this, you're <laughs> uh-huh. never going to see it. Okay? So there's really clearly one thing that you're missing here with them escaping the fiery inferno of that building in this whole plot that happened in 48 hours. Okay. This could theoretically by the screenwriter, Daniel waters, this could all be a dream. <laughs> you ever think about that? Okay. <laughs> oh, shit. I did it because oh, it's not shit. told that way. <laughs> Listen, Isaac, I How also am I supposed to assume that I will let you go on, but I need to, I need to, I need to address something you said earlier. And then I want to let Chang please uh, address the Romeo and Juliet of it. But you said movies don't have to be intellectual. One of the reasons, like, 
there's one person listening to this podcast who is a huge Demolition Man fan, and he or she has been waiting for us to address the fact that this whole entire movie is drawn from Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, hence mm-hmm. Sandra Bullock's name, Lenina Huxley, uh, Lenina being one of the main characters of Brave New World. If you don't think that this is an intellectual movie that's based on a dystopian British novel and it's about societal control uh, butting up against freedom, I don't know what movie you watched, man. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, and added added with that dream state from, from Aldous Huxley, who yeah. basically yeah. wrote a book about taking mescaline. Okay, exactly. you have no idea so, about the dream the dream state. Exactly. So we were all. So every single person watching this movie is supposed to have read that and have come in assuming that's the case. Here's the thing, Isaac. Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes did die when they jumped out of that building. They are in a coma, (laughs) and this entire thing is a fever dream that they are experiencing together. Did you ever think Uh, about that? (laughs) No, because they don't tell it that way. Well, no, you're just not looking at it like with the right mindset, Isaac, obviously. Can, oh I, can, I, can I talk about the Romeo and Juliet? You bring up one of sure. my favorite parts before I go into the negatives. Then they're quite some. But this is the one, one of my favorite parts. And actually, in my pros list, you're going to just see three things. Four things. These are my four positive things for the movie. Amazing cast. Sting's Demolition Man is one of his most underrated hits. <laughs> okay, so you jump straight to the soundtrack. Okay. <laughs> Chang, that song. I, I'm with you on almost everything. I am so your good. I'm your associate Bob on almost all of this, but that song fucking sucks. <laughs> it's so good. The police song is much so better. Good. And then three, you can't ask for a better beginning of a movie because it makes no sense whatsoever. So you admit it's, it. It's like, no, it's great. He jumps out of a helicopter. By himself, uh-huh. you can't even. I almost wanted to have subtitles because you can't even hear what he's saying to the helicopter pilots. He bungee jumps into <laughs> the building. <laughs> I mean, come on! There are people shooting at him. Kind of building. Not a single yeah. bullet hits him. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's a dream state. Obviously, Isaac. The sooner you <laughs> understand that, basically, this is the Matrix before the Matrix. Okay, this is Matrix before Keanu Reeves Matrix. <laughs> okay. Where do you think the Wachowski brothers got the helicopter idea from? And the rope? Yeah. Huh? Sure. This movie has <laughs> way more of an influence than you could ever, ever dream of. So going back to Romeo and Juliet, this is my last, my last favorite pro, okay? Is the dialogue of the people in the future. Because it's like they almost speak, I literally have this written down, in Shakespearean iambic pentameter. Oh they do. God. They do, actually. It's true. Yeah. Can you guys remember any of the sort of phrases they say to one another throughout the movie? Just like the liquid transfer line is really, that's the one that sticks out to me. It sounds like Shakespeare. Because here's the, here's the crazy thing. If in like 50 years or 100 years, people hear us speak, they're going to be like, you guys sound like idiots. That doesn't make any sense. If you try to read like Mason Dixon, Thomas Pynchon's novel about... 18th century America, it's an impossible read because he literally wrote it in the colloquialisms of that era. It's like impossible to read. They speak like a future. I really don't know. Everything else I was saying is obviously like total mumbo jumbo. 
But this I actually give them credit for. I think Daniel Waters wrote a script of the future talk where it could actually might be how San Angeles sounds like. Because again, there was a great earthquake that now combined San Diego and all surrounding areas, San Bernardino with Los Angeles called San Angeles. Yeah. Everything from Santa Barbara below. Yeah, I do think that's yeah. interesting, Chang. I, that, he did invent a bit of a dialect like a, or a jargon specific to the future. It's, it's, there yeah. are repeated phrases, and there definitely is like a cadence to this language he wrote. I'm, I don't think he's like Tolkien. He didn't like invent an elvish language, but I definitely give him credit for, for creating some sort of consistent jargon throughout. And you have to as well, right, Isaac? Yeah, I, I can agree with that. I can definitely see the value and the, I mean, you said genius. I won't go that far, but the <laughs> uh, the level of sophistication to create a very highbrow mannerism of speaking. Yeah, it's almost like David Milch, Deadwood, like Shakespeare, you know, Western talk, but in the future. Mm-hmm. That's it. Those are my four positives <laughs> of the movie. Speaking of the future, can we talk about something here? So this movie was released in 1993, and yes. the opening scene is 1996. And in 1996, the like shit has completely fallen apart. Like Los Angeles is run by a warlord. People who are imprisoned are cryogenically frozen and behaviorally reprogrammed. This is like three years into the future of when this movie was made like people in when they made this movie must have really not thought things were going well well here can we get to the cons here you just started about like the 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 whole beginning scene is amazing from the bungee scene but where it loses me sort of is there's no due process (laughs) there's no trial no due process no fair trial Just straight frozen. I love it. It's amazing. What is this? <laughs> Three years after 1993. It's just yeah. all laws break apart. I, I mean, to Isaac's point, basically, the criminal's being arrested, and as he's being put in the back of the cop car, he goes, the cop did it. And <laughs> because he said that, the cop gets put into cryo-freeze. Yeah. Can I, can I say something about this? Okay. So... Spartan has a longer sentence than Phoenix. I rewound this because I couldn't believe it. Spartan was supposed to be frozen until 2066, which is 70 years, 34 years longer than the parole hearing of Phoenix in 2032. So he has a longer sentence. The cop has a longer sentence than the criminal. Chang, I don't, I don't know what you think, but it, it really does sound like Isaac's taking like a Blue Lives Matter stance here. Right? He really sounds <laughs> I'm not, like he's... I'm definitely not. <laughs> I mean, like, it's like weirdly progressive, I guess, to believe in what someone's saying against law enforcement. But it just has to, it has to make a modicum of sense in order for it to be that kind of statement. Yeah. Can we talk about one thing that I think about this? This is crazy. We're in 2020. This is what, 27 years later? If in movies today, like a Ryan Reynolds movie, like Deadpool or any Ben Affleck movie that does an action movie or whatever, if they ever did those kinds of things you hear or see about in cartoons or the movies in the early 90s and late 80s where you have the action hero, the protagonist, and the antagonist basically telegraphing their moves before they actually do it, 
You know what I'm talking about? Like every line that Wesley Snipes has, Simon Phoenix says, well, now I'm going to kill you. And then he shoots. Now I'm going to shoot you. And then he shoots. You know what I mean? And Sylvester Stallone's the same thing. He's like, everything is like, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to do it. Right? This weird movie trope. When (laughs) did that die? You're literally looking at what I mean, a cultural artifact, <laughs> like if we're archaeologists or something. Right. The waning moments of this happening in Hollywood because it doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Here's an actual note that I wrote. Um, if they all shut the fuck up, this movie would have been over in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's word for word what I wrote. That's just rude. That's just rude. But, but Yang, what do you think about this? <laughs> Look, I. I don't want to think too hard about it because it's going to make me not like this movie. But yeah, every everything they do, it's as though this movie was made so that it could work for blind audiences as well as as people who could see. Because they say <laughs> they say everything they're going to do before they do it. It's, it's tell, don't show. This movie could just be a an audiobook. <laughs> they, they say everything that's happening. <laughs> It's a podcast. It's it a, podcast be a podcast before a podcast. It could just be a podcast. This this movie is a podcast. Um, yeah, they they say everything they're going to do before they do it, and then they do it, and they fail at it. But when was the last time you saw anything like this? This could have been like one of the last movies of a genre that telegraphed the action. Yeah. But Dave, there's a reason why. I don't know. Like, I'm a huge fan of the Fast and Furious franchise, and I think that like there are a lot of similarities like that is obviously the sort of descendant of of this movie or or, or the fast and the furious movies where it's just pure yeah. just like i'm going to say this ridiculous thing and then you're going to see me do this ridiculous thing nothing is going to be unexpected right. i did think about fast and furious franchise a lot while watching it cuz the jumping out of a burning building the car chase towards the end that's all like the dna of this movie definitely lives on in that franchise so you're right in that sense do you think that it was annoying that they only referenced the 80s and 90s for nostalgia for the future? Yeah, there's, so there's literally a Lethal Weapon poster <laughs> up in the background at Lenina Huxley's office. Red Hot Chili Peppers <laughs> poster. Mm-hmm. It's like so weird. When I, when I first saw it in context, I thought it was super clever. I'll be honest, as a kid, I was like, oh, that's so funny because that's really in our world. But yeah, it's a little over the top. I will say this, though. Chang, you and I talk often about movies set in the future and whether or not they get the future right. And I I would love to hear what you guys think about their perception of the Mm. future here. It's 2032. In some senses, everything is dominated by FaceTime. Their version of FaceTime. Everybody communicates via FaceTime. There are self-driving cars that aren't that different from what we have now. Yeah. And yeah, I, what do you guys think? I have a lot to say about this because this is basically the crux of my entire not watching this movie, but also watching this movie <laughs> argument is uh, is uh, my whole thing for any movie that takes place in the future for it to like pass the mustard test is the 2001 Space Odyssey. Right or Blade Runner. Those are the two mm. movies, but really 2001 is number one and Blade Runner number two, where you watch a movie and Space Odyssey came out in like seven or no, before that, I think late 60s. And Blade Runner came in like 82. Space Odyssey, they didn't even know what the Earth looked like from outer space when they made that right. movie. That didn't exist yet. 
So like it took real imagination. And if you watch that now from them, like going to outer space and eating and sleeping and all these things, it still makes sense to me as like, that might be the future, right? Even how, and Blade Runner again is a perfect example of that still might be the future. It's so well thought out and constructed that it's like a, still like a, a benchmark where future technology might go. Where this movie fails the 2001 Space Odyssey test in spades is that there's nothing they use that isn't technology from 1993, <laughs> for the most for the most part. <laughs> yeah, with the exception of one thing that I think is truly genius in future thinking: the secure foam when Sylvester the secure Sloan gets foam. In the car oh crash. my god, Chang, describe what yeah. that is. It's something that I was that should be here today, basically, with like nanotechnology or something. Like you get in a crash and it immediately shoots this safety foam that you're stuck in place and then you can easily break out of, but it's it prevents you from, you know, trauma, physical blunt force trauma. It's brilliant. This image has stuck with me for nearly 30 years now. <laughs> this fucking image. Sly Stallone crashes this car and Immediately upon impact, the entire car is flooded with foam that like solidifies into styrofoam. So he cannot move, cannot break a bone. Nothing can happen to him. It is, I'm like, from the time I saw that till now, I was like, why don't cars have that? That's the one 2001 Space Odyssey thing that they got that's still far ahead in the future that could possibly happen. The other thing that's interesting, again, why it's sort of stuck in like 1993 technology (laughs) is they're basing the future of 2036 and there's no cloud. (laughs) You know, the cloud literally would be beyond anyone's comprehension in 1993. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Slice alone has to get a physical copy of the security tapes. Yeah. You can't just download it. And using a CD-ROM and then plug it into TVs that are not flat screen or anything. They just look like TVs from 1993. <laughs> it's not good. The other advancement, the other major technical advancement in... Um, I'm sorry, what is his name? Daniel Waters, is that his name? In the Watersian future is the three <laughs> seashells. <laughs> yeah. And so, Which we never get an explanation of, by the way. Thank you, thank <laughs> you. They come up multiple times, but I'll set the scene and I want to hear whatever what you guys think about this. But Sylvester Sloan emerges from cryofreeze. He's been frozen for 30-odd years, and he's got to take a shit. And he comes out and says to the, the police officers, I don't know if you realize this, but uh, you're out of toilet paper. And they all start snickering at him and say, oh, my God. Yeah, back in the 20th, they used little sheets of paper. And Rob Schneider, who we didn't mention as one of the cast members here, snickers and says, oh, he doesn't know how to use the three seashells. <laughs> so evidently in the future, toilet paper has been replaced by three seashells. And here's something that you shouldn't do is think about how someone might use three seashells in place of toilet paper. <sighs> It's like a futuristic bidet of some sort, right? That's what it's supposed to be. So good. I was leaving that for you. That was just like a layup, and I I wanted you to have it. And I'm so happy that you jumped all over <laughs> the three seashells. It's it took like, all of my uh, all of my willpower not to talk about it. 
<laughs> I mean, like, you know, you know, that was the only thing I wanted to talk about was the three seashells. And and I don't, uh, you know, put it, putting aside, here's the question that arose for me. My whole childhood, I, I wondered, how do you use the three seashells to clean your butt? But then <laughs> the question, the question that dawned on me today in rewatching this was Sylvester Stallone has been in cryo freeze for 30 something years why does he have to take a shit? Did he have to take a shit when he was put under cryo freeze and he's been holding it in for 30 years and now he's got to oh let it God. out? Oh my God. That's a great question. Can we talk about the dystopian underworld future and how it looks exactly like some kind of movie studio in Universal Studios? <laughs> it just looks so plot, yes. so like they literally shot it. In a it studio. was very like, clearly a soundstage. Perfect <laughs> neon signs everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So the the underground world where Dennis Leary and his band of steampunk freedom fighters live. The scraps. Uh scraps. <laughs> is yeah, is is a set they just like, I don't know, rented from Universal Studios. Like it was just I it's barely dressed up as anything. I don't really understand it at all. And what is it, though? It's like it's supposed to be, I don't know, it's supposed to be like a night market scene. There's just these kind of people running around everywhere. I will say this though, and I, I'm I really want to hear what you think about this, Dave. So they go down into this underworld and Sandra Bullock and Benjamin Bratt are are disgusted and they say like, oh my God, what is that smell? And Sylvester Stallone immediately recognizes it as the smell of burgers. And he goes and he gets a bur- he orders a burger from a Spanish speaking um, vendor and he orders a beer and a burger and he eats it and finds out that the meat is rat. But then Sylvester Stallone, I've never, I've never loved his character more than the moment he finds out it's rat and he cocks his head. And he takes another bite and says, oh, "This is the best burger I've had in a long time." I was I was so proud of him, man. I was so I was so proud of I'm so proud of him. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. He says it's the best burger he's had in a long in years before the information hits him. But then he takes another bite and says, "Hey, not too bad." Yeah, but he keep he keeps eating it. He keeps on going. He keeps you know, eating it, motherfucking hero. Can we also talk about the hair? How everyone in the underworld has perfect hair. That's been hairsprayed and gelled. How's that? How's that possible? When they haven't taken a shower in months, they don't have food, but they have uh, hairspray. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. And they have neon, they have neon signs directing where you need to go all throughout the underworld. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So, so Dennis Leary pits this question to everybody: live up there, and you live in Doctor Cocteau's world. Uh, and do what he says and what he wants. Down here, you might starve to death, but you live free. Honest answer, which of those two worlds is more appealing to you guys? Um, I would be the person that would live upstairs and go downstairs. I would do both. <laughs> oh, what a hedge. Yeah, yeah. I'm an upstairs yeah. boy, man. I'm, a, I'm an upstairs boy all the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know... Like, if it wasn't for the very, like, fascist overtones of that pseudo-pacifist world, yeah, I think I'd definitely be more more attracted to the upstairs world. I, who would say downstairs? I don't know. That's like That seems like a very ideological thing to say. But when met with the choice, you would take upstairs. 
No, I mean, there's the one thing is upstairs, they only have sex the Aldous Huxley way, as they did in that book. <laughs> VR, VR sex, yeah. Downstairs, yeah. you can have like normal physical relations. And I think that would be important. Yeah, I guess that's true. And you can eat, you don't just eat terrible food. I, I Yeah, but still, I'm a, I'm a soft upstairs boy. <laughs> just put me in the machine, and man. The- <laughs> put me in the matrix. And the other I'm thing fine. that's cool about downstairs world, the other thing that's cool about downstairs world is everyone that's like, not just this movie, but what is it about dystopian future? Like every movie that's ever made where the common folk all dress as football players. Like <laughs> they all have like, <laughs> Ads. <laughs> yeah, I don't get it. Uh. Um, okay, so here's a, here's one other thing I want to get. I, I want to talk about. So it turns out at some point in, the, in this movie that Sylvester Stallone is talking to Sandra Bullock. Um, we find out that Sly Stallone was married and had a daughter before he was put under. And we find out that the, that the wife is gone. She died in the big earthquake of 2010. But then we never hear about the daughter again. He says, Sandra Bullock says, mm-hmm. oh, I'll look her up if you want me to. And he says, no, I don't. Don't do that. I don't want you to, to look into her. And at that moment, Isaac, this is the first time you saw this movie. Sandra Bullock says, I'll look her up for you. And Sly Stallone stops her. Isn't yeah. it at that moment? Aren't you definitely sure that Sandra Bullock is Sylvester Stallone's daughter? Yes, 1,000%. Like, uh, th- there was no doubt in my mind. And it's weird because they never come back to it. But I did find a note on IMDb that said they had scenes with Spartan's daughter. But they were deleted after blowback came from audience test screenings because they have that scene where Spartan sleeps with Sandra Bullock's character and they're 18 years apart. So it, it felt weird from the audience that yeah. Spartan would be sleeping with the woman who kind of would be a daughter figure. But going back to Chang's original question of could this movie be made today? I say if director Bong made this movie, Sandra Bullock mm. absolutely would have been his daughter. They definitely would have had sex and this movie would would, would have won an Academy Award. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if that's a Bong Joon-ho move as much as like That's an old man move. What's that movie? The Korean movie Old Man? Old Boy. Yeah. That happened. If they had let Waters and I'm sorry, what, what is his name? What is the director's name? Uh, Marco, you're a, Marco. Marco. As we're calling we're a, him. We were on a first name first, basis with him earlier. Yeah, first name basis. If they had let Marco see out his original creative vision for this and let Sandra Bullock be Sylvester Stallone's daughter, Academy Awards all over the place. <laughs> That's the one thing. It's the one thing that would fix this whole movie, in your opinion. Yeah, everybody knows that incest movies win Academy Awards. <laughs> All right, Cheng, make the case again. What else in this movie makes the case for this being a forgotten gem? Well, this is that you guys really just came to like the nub and core of what I wanted to talk about is I think that Daniel Waters really was trying to talk about some form of a Greek tragedy where the hero, fallen hero, has sex with his daughter, finds out. And it's like, oh, no, very Korean thing. But it's like, I think there's a lot of like weird Greek plays. Like he's this fallen hero. He's a fallible hero. And you're going to you're gonna think I'm crazy, Ying, because you know I've talked about this so much <laughs> in no, the no. birth of tragedy, Nietzsche. But 
here you see one society of like a, a cautionary tale of society basically removing all suffering and going straight to a Dr. Cocktail place of efficiency and rational thought and logic. And then you have the Dionysian of Edgar Friendly's underworld where it's just no rules. You can do whatever you want, but you might be hungry, right? And it's all suffering. I think that Daniel Waters is definitely trying to tell us this story. Of of the many times there, Dave, that you have that we you and I have talked about the birth of tragedy and the need for a balance between the Dionysian and the Apollonian order and chaos, this is probably the most appropriate and clear cut case of that being true. <laughs> I'm not even kidding, man. Like what, what you, when you should, I mean, we talk about that in terms of steak dinners and football and every single thing uh, imaginable, but demolition man might be a perfect exemplar of tragedy. And guess what? John Spartan and Simon Phoenix are supposed to be Nietzsche's representation of the overman. And they're saying the balance is between the two. And as you said in the earlier in this podcast, you know, you got to get a little bit dirty and you got to shower a little bit and, you know, meet somewhere in the middle. That's basically what Nietzsche is saying. Done. <laughs> they should teach this movie in philosophy classes. Um, Isaac, do you feel oh swayed at all? <laughs> no. <laughs> Listen, that's a way to read into this, right? That's a way to put meaning on it. It's just that's not a thing that, you know, I studied a lot of philosophy. I studied a lot of Nietzsche. A lot of my college years are spent looking up ontology and reading a bunch of Schopenhauer and, and Jean Cocteau. I mean, he's, he, the Cocteau name is definitely taken from L'Enfant Terrible, but like, that's like such a leap for my brain to make when I'm watching an action film. Because I'm going in and I, and I see Wesley Slipes and Sliced Alone and I'm thinking, this is an action film. I have expectations of what an action film should be. And if you're going to say that this is supposed to be some sort of treatise, that's such a mental leap I'm supposed to make outside of the genre. I'm supposed no, 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 to have no. all of this philosophical no. Isaac, education. It's a, it's a treaty on the will to power. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> and you just have to accept it. <laughs> Okay. Okay. I'm I mean, not even kidding. <laughs> uh, All right. I think that none of this, none of this sort of conflict between the Dionysian and the Apollonian, the the sort of order versus chaos, is better encapsulated than in the final battle scene between John Spartan and Simon Phoenix. Uh, I like how we're skipping over the middle of the movie because the middle of the movie does not matter. <laughs> That's not, it, that's it doesn't. There's simply, no plot. Simply it's not all true. exposition. That's it's all, simply, it takes it takes 50 minutes until the museum scene and an hour 25 until you get under the sewers. I will say that if anybody is like a Sylvester Stallone fan, you can fast forward through the first 35 minutes because he's not in this movie. Um, <laughs> but the climactic scene of the movie, the climactic battle scene, Wesley Snipes has a sharpened piece of rebar in his hands and he's about to stab it down upon John Spartan and he says I'll see you in hell John and John Spartan says not 
which which to me is an incredible comeback that could only have existed in the 90s. Can I add can I add one well, that's a brilliant ending but I want to have one more thing which is actually like very much a head scratcher in San Angeles, right? You would expect cuz this is like where I'm like gets me a little upset. Would you agree that the Apollinian Society of Dr. Cocktail, the most traditional like, <laughs> clothing that everyone wears, seems to be Asian in nature? What is that? Right? Why, why are they all wearing kimonos? Hmm. That's a good question. There's no fucking Asian people. Well, there was that None. group of little Asian kids that Wesley Snipes' character makes fun of in a very racist manner. Uh, yeah. He goes, he does do that. And those are the two signs of Asian people in here is the fact that all of the future people wear kimonos and rice paddy worker hats and racism toward Asian people exists unabated <laughs> in 2032. Yeah, right. But this is why this is important to actually talk about for all jokes aside. It's like, oh, if this was accepted... Then think about it. If you were born in the 80s or 70s and then you see this movie and then you see that this is accepted and you see how you're supposed to sort of like be a passive minority in all of this and you get made fun of by the antagonist, how does that not affect how you're supposed to like be a real Asian American in 1993, 1994? Because hmm. that type of shit yep. would never happen in 2020. Yeah, and and it's what's crazy about that, Dave. I think that's a super interesting point because that joke. So basically, what's happening is Simon Phoenix, Wesley Snipes, is in this museum, and a, and a group of led by an Asian woman, a, a group of little kids wearing who are I guess Asian, just walk by. They walk by. It's a throwaway scene completely. And Wesley Snipes, as they're walking by, goes ching chong ching chong ching, and there's no reason for it to exist. Yeah, It doesn't do anything, and it's not part of the plot. Those people aren't part of the plot. And in 1993, a throwaway, super racist Asian insult is just there. There's no mm -hmm. reason for it, and, and, and it just, I don't know. It's like set decoration. A grown man being racist to little children in public in a museum. That's just there. Where are you, Marco Brambia? Marco Brambia, you answer. <laughs> answer these questions right now, you motherfucker. Marco! I mean, why do you think Marco Brambia disappeared? He was wrestling with the the shame of that. I, I, it's, it is messed up. And, and there's, I mean, there are whole movies that are steeped in racism toward African-Americans and, and throughout cinematic history. But, you know, the, the kind of casual, useless racism toward Asians, I think that 1993 was not the end of it. I think it existed way, 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 way longer than that and maybe still persists today. Yeah. Just like little throwaway ching chong jokes. Um, those are pretty painful for sure. So do you think this movie's aged well though, this movie in any way? <sighs> I, I do. It's funny that you brought up in the very beginning, the fact that this movie came to mind for you was the whole like restaurant franchise wars and Taco Bell being the only remaining restaurant. And, and there is like a sort of interesting 
dystopic reality to that uh, in what we're facing right now. And, and so in that sense, like, yeah, I guess it's age and like there's something to be said for it. I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, when I was a kid, this movie really defined what I thought satire was and hmm. shaped that for me in a pretty intense way. Like, I, I realized, like, and I thought it was so cool because freshman year of high school, I read Brave New World and I was like, oh my God, that's what Demolition Man's about. And like, that was the first time something I'd read had ever shown up in a a movie and and it was really meaningful. I, I don't know, Chang. I don't know if this has aged with the same relevance for me. Then the next question then is, would you watch it again on cable? Well, so I, I if you were I, flipping through the channels, <laughs> I uh, you saw it on cable. Would you watch it? Hell yeah! I rented this thing on whatever service Google Play, maybe, and I got I think I got twenty six hours left on my rental. I'm going to watch this motherfucker at least one more time. <laughs> oh my god! One hundred percent. Oh, 100%. I'm going to watch this again. I've watched least. this movie probably 25 times in my lifetime. Oh, my God. 25? <laughs> yeah, at least. I, I, I'm i with you. I, that's that's where at I least, am. 25 at least, times. At least. 25 times, yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. Um, I have no desire to watch this ever again. Isaac, I think you're being ageist. You're being ageist, man. <laughs> I'm not being ageist. It's just, it's just not a good movie. It's like paced really weirdly. There's a bunch of things that don't hold up. I will say... Something that holds up very well, and we we addressed this earlier, but holy shit, young Sandra Bullock, mm, unbelievable! Like, wow, seeing her in that in that very um weird gem dress, it was <laughs> yeah. uh, it was definitely like wow. Okay, she had it, you know. Yeah, I agree, Isaac. I guess I guess if you want to just like minimize this movie that Chang and I have been talking about as an exploration of the Dionysian versus the Apollonian and a rebuke on <laughs> rebuke on the uh, overlord state. I guess if it's just Sandra Bullock and her dress made of marbles oh to you, I guess if that's all it means, then fine. <laughs> okay, I'll, I, we, can, we can stop it here, but let me ask you guys, the last note and question I have is at one point in this movie, for anybody who's still listening to this and trying to follow along, at one point, Sylvester Stallone knits a sweater for Sandra Bullock. Mm-hmm. I'm not making that up. That's a real thing that happens in this movie. He knits it in one night and gives her this luscious red sweater, and she smells it. She puts it up to her face and, and inhales deeply of this sweater that Sly Stallone made. And so the last question I was wondering about for you guys is what do you think Sylvester Stallone smells like? <laughs> oh my he God. He smells like Dracar Noir. He does. Oh fuck. That's literally what it says on my screen. He smells like Dracar Noir. Oh, what? Wow. Oh my God. I have never thought about <laughs> how how Sly Stallone smells in my life, but uh, yeah, I'm sure Jakar Noir. Yeah, it sounds that makes that makes sense. Yeah, and for some reason, coconut oil. Oh yeah, copious amounts of coconut oil. That's all I got, man. Did you think it was possible to dissect a movie like this as deeply as we've done? Do you think it's ever been done in the history of mankind? I mean, how did this get made? Exists, and that's a podcast that goes through bad movies. They did an episode on this. But they don't. They, I don't think they talk about Nietzsche. No, no, they definitely don't. All right, guys, that's it. Please give us one star on <laughs> iTunes. 
or however you rate this podcast. <laughs> any, just, any stars will do, please. <laughs> just, just a single star, at, at least. Just don't give us zero, you know? <laughs> 